Welcome to the bonus pod. This is nothing personal with David Sampson. You've done it. You rate five stars. You go into Apple and you ask questions when you write a review. And I do a bonus pod at the end of every month, first Saturday of each month. This is the March pod. Of course, you're listening to it on the first Saturday of the following month, which is April, whatever day this is. Can't remember. And what I do is you ask questions and I'm going to answer them. Now, I got so many questions. I chose ones that I think are interesting to you. But let me know when you review this episode and keep asking questions, because in addition to so you want to talk to Samson during the normal nothing personal, this is different. I appreciate that you're telling friends about the pod. We're going to keep going and providing content that makes you think, makes you feel like you're in the room, that you're hearing really what's going on. So I want to get right into it. The first question, very interesting, and thank you. What advantages or disadvantages are there in drafting a college player versus a high And then do you see a difference when you call up a player who had come out of college versus calling up a player of the same age who did not go to college. And the third part of your question that I'm going to answer, did you ever encourage a player who was drafted to go to college instead of entering the minor leagues? Crystal clear to the way the, it's called the Rule 4 draft in Major League Baseball. That is what you would know as the amateur draft. To be eligible for the Rule 4 draft in baseball, you either have to have completed high school or completed three years of college. So you're drafting college juniors or high school seniors. If you draft a college junior and that player decides not to sign with you, that player goes back to college, finishes his senior year, And after senior year, he can also be eligible to be drafted. Of course, anyone who's not drafted is eligible to be signed as a free agent and by any organization. And in the old days, it was pretty easy to hide players. And that's what we would do when I first got into baseball. We'd find players and we'd pretend we weren't interested in them. We'd find players and we would keep them in our Dominican Republic facility and not let anyone see them until they were old enough to be drafted out of the Dominican internationally, which was 16. All sorts of chicanery, what you would call, was all legal. Now there is none of that. And now with the proliferation of video scouting and the ease of travel, it is much, much harder to find a diamond in the rough the way an old scout of ours, Fred Ferreira, found Vladimir Guerrero in the Dominican as a kid And I think the Expo signed him for like five or ten thousand dollars. And obviously he now has a five or ten thousand dollar plaque in Cooperstown. So if a player is drafted, that means we want him to play in our system. We believe that there is an opportunity for him to be a major leaguer. We spend money developing players. That's the minor league system. That's why it's called player development. One of the decisions we make as a player's career continues in the minor leagues is who merits further investment in his development versus who we no longer believe will be a productive major leaguer. It is true that when you pay a player a lot of money as a 
drafted player in a signing bonus, we will spend more money on that player because we've invested money in that player. So if a high draft pick is not performing well in the minor leagues, we are going to give him every opportunity to get better. We're going to try to coach him differently, show him different pitches, help his arm, help his base running, help his swing, anything to recoup our investment. If you spend 10 grand on a player in a bonus and that player doesn't work, you just release that player because any player who's in your system is taking up time. Not space. Notice I didn't say space because you've heard me say on nothing personal that we have too many players in the minor leagues, most of whom we know are never going to make it. But the amount of time that our coaches and our specialty coaches spend on players is often correlated to the amount of money we have spent on a bonus. So I would never encourage a player who we drafted to ever go to college only because we want that player in our system. In terms of the advantage of a player going to college versus high school, I want to talk specifically about a name you may know, Jeff Conine, former Marlins player, Mr. Marlin, two World Series with us. He has a son named Griffin Conine. When Griffin Conine was a senior in high school, I've known Griffin since 2003. He's 23 years old now, so I met him when he was a baby, six years old. He was into skateboarding, didn't really like baseball. He then started to fall in love with baseball, started playing in high school, but he was not yet good enough out of high school where he was going to be a drafted player. The Marlins drafted him out of high school just as a nice thing for Jeff Conine, which is what you can do. You can draft anybody when you have 40 rounds, but he went back to college. He went to Duke because he was either going to develop into a player in college or he wasn't going to be a player. But there was no major league team who was going to be willing to invest money in developing him during those years. From a standpoint of Griffin, he ended up being a very high draft choice with the Blue Jays, got a very nice signing bonus, and he's now on his way to becoming a major league player. The reason why that we would take kids out of high school, let's say Christian Yelich or Jose Fernandez or Giancarlo Stanton, is that we believe that getting them into the minor league system focused on baseball under professional instruction will enable that player to be a polished major leaguer faster than if he were to go to college because we would scout that player and say, we are projecting him to be a bona fide major leaguer and we want him to be a bona fide major leaguer as quickly as possible. So if you've got a player who goes to college who gets drafted, by the time he's in your minor league system, he's 21 years old, we were calling up Miguel Cabrera to bat cleanup at 19 because we drafted him. He was actually an international sign when he was young, but you've got high schoolers who are playing on your team who can be major leaguers by the time they're 21. So the bottom line is, from an advantage-disadvantage standpoint of taking a college player, The only advantage of a college player is that that player was not really good enough to be taken as a high schooler, and you're not going to hear people describe it that way. But then in college, they matured, they got bigger, they grew, they got stronger, and now they are good enough to be in your system. When we are calling up a player from the minor leagues, we do not think for one second whether he was a college sign or a high school sign. No matter what scouting and development or GMs tell you, When you draft a college player and say, hey, he's closer to the big leagues than a high schooler, that may be true in some cases, 
but we're not focused on the age of a player when we call him up. We're focused on how much that player can help us before we have to pay him a lot of money. Thank you for that question. Okay, next question is uh, a pretty simple question that is not a simple answer. Can you talk about local TV money in baseball? And do you think it is more of a local sport now? Phenomenal question. Unlike the NFL, I want to start there. The local TV money in the NFL is nothing. It's scraps. It's ancillary programming about off-season training and conditioning, stuff that no one will pay for, no one cares about. All of the money in football comes from national TV deals, which is split equally, whether you're the Packers, the Cowboys, the Buccaneers, the New Orleans Saints, it doesn't paid to the league. It's distributed equally to each team. In baseball, there are two parts of TV revenue. National revenue, national revenue is split 30 ways evenly. The national revenue is the game of the week, Sunday night, the game of the week on Fox, and then the entire postseason, which you see on all different channels. The reality is that that national money, while it is tremendous and very helpful to teams who don't get a lot of national exposure, like the Marlins, who don't make like the Marlins, the same TV Yankees. So why isn't our payroll or their payroll the same as the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Cubs or the Dodgers? Because local local TV revenue is the great differentiator in Major League Baseball. The Los Angeles Dodgers get 250 million. The Marlins get under 20 million. Just think about that on a yearly basis. The Dodgers get 250. The Marlins get under 20. Now, there's a new TV deal coming for the Marlins, but let's say the best they can do is 50 or 60 or 70, or if I were still there, maybe 80. That's a little plug for me not having been fired by Mr. Jeets. But even at 80, think about the difference between 80 and 250. Now, now if you're paying attention, you've heard me talk about revenue sharing in baseball. There is revenue sharing where the high revenue teams give a percentage of their revenue to the low revenue teams. For every dollar that revenue sharing payors get, they have to give away 33 cents. So let's even pretend that the Dodgers lose one third of that TV revenue, which is not accurate. And I'll explain why that 250 becomes, let's just give an example and say it's $80 million that they would get into the revenue sharing pool, they're still getting 170 million while the Marlins are getting 80 or 90. That, think about that difference in payroll. When you have an $80 million difference in payroll, that means that the Dodgers can make mistakes with their signings and the Marlins can't. Baseball is a much more local sport than football, but it's a little less local than it used to be because of the proliferation of the intergoogle. The internet 
I call it the inter-Google because I'm old, is a way for you to be able to watch what's called out-of-market games. In the old days, if you were not a fan of your local team, you were SOL. Currently, if you're not a fan of your local team, you can actually access out-of-market games. If you're a Yankee fan living in Miami, you weren't able to watch the Yankees in the good old days. Now you can watch every single Yankee game and never watch a Marlin game. We used to fight that as the Marlins because we didn't want anyone watching anything in Miami other than Marlins games. Why? Because that was our opportunity to get paid more money from our local TV provider. So we would do a deal and our local revenue deal would be based on the number of cable subscribers, ironically, for all of you listening who don't have cable and the amount of advertising revenue. But that was a tiny part of the equation. The size of your market was the big difference. There are way more cable subscribers in L.A. or New York than there are in Miami. There is a list of markets. Miami, Fort Lauderdale is like the 18th biggest market in the land. So we get the 18th highest TV deal in theory. To me, when I think about baseball and is it more of a local sport, when I'm building a team, to when I first got into the game, I would want to get local players because I would think, hey, bring in a Miamian, bring in a Cuban. They will help build attendance. They will help sell tickets. They will help with my local TV rights. It turns out that I guess that means one. What I mean is the two only things that help are the size of your market and the number of victories in the standings that you have. Teams have the ability to start their own networks now. You've seen Yes Network in New York, SNY with the Mets. The Cubs are starting their own network. For the Marlins, it was never a chance. We told our local TV provider, Fox, that we would threaten to start a new network, but talk about empty threats. They knew that we did not have the base to start a network. There was no way to make it financially work, so they knew we'd have to cut a deal with them, which is why we would not have as big a deal as maybe other teams in addition to market size. Conversations about local TV, but suffice it to say, local TV money in baseball matters, and I do not think it's more of a local sport, and that's why you see such revenue disparity between large revenue, large market teams, and small revenue, small market teams. Thanks for that question. Okay, next question. Love this. What MLB team did you root for as a child? I grew up in New York. I was born in for cool, wake fan of the Yankees and Reggie Jackson and Dave Winfield and Don Mattingly, which is why last month I answered who was the coolest person I got to meet in my 18 years. Can you imagine hiring your childhood, one of your childhood heroes to work with you and be your manager? except I was sad that one day I'd have to fire him. But luckily, I was fired first. So I never had to fire Don Mattingly. But I liked the Yankees, but I didn't love them because I grew up not loving baseball. I loved to play it, but my favorite sport was basketball, hands down. I lived and died with the New York Knicks. 
back from Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe through Patrick Ewing up through Latrell Sprewell, the 1999 finals appearance. That was uh, with Latrell Sprewell. The 1994 Finals appearance. Can you imagine, Nick fans out there, the Knicks were in the NBA Finals twice in five years? Hard to imagine, especially what's happened since. But the Yankees were the team that I rooted for as a child. But I was nine years old when they won the World Series in 77, 10 years old when they won it in 78. And then in 1996, I was 28 years old. And I was not as big a fan then because I had just gotten older, but it was still cool. So part of this question also was, which players, managers, and front office personnel have had the greatest impact on me and why? So let me, that's a great question. And thank you. Let me talk about players and uh, who's had the greatest impact on me and why. I'm going to start back in the beginning of my career where I had an opportunity to have Vladimir Guerrero, and I want to talk about why he had such an impact on me. Vladimir Guerrero had problems back then reading and writing, and I had grown up so sheltered. I had never had the opportunity to meet people who professional athlete, physical autographs and to do other He had such an impact on me because the first time that I traveled alone with Vladimir is when he and I went to the All-Star game and we had to fly out of Montreal, not on a charter plane. And I realized that he couldn't really make it through an airport without help. And that's when I first understood the seriousness of education. And I always knew it was important to be educated, but I saw it as it was happening. And I thought to myself that he is going to be one of the richest people I know because of what he can do with his arm, his hand-eye coordination, his ability to play. But in order to exist in the world, to not have the ability to read and write impedes your ability to function. And it's why it is so important to get an education and so important for our educators to be able to do their job and be compensated to do their job. He had such an impact on me off the field with growing up. Then as my career went on, I started to have a new appreciation for the impact that players had for what they did on the field. And I've had had players and I've had the opportunity to meet so many to have Barry Bonds as a coach. But I would say the number one player with the greatest impact was Ichiro. And the reason why he had the greatest impact on me is I'd never been around a player who was really more famous than anyone I'd ever been around. And by that time in my career, I'd been around famous people forever. And I'd been in rooms with George Steinbrenner. I'd been in meetings with baseball, superstar players, Hall of Fame players, actors, actresses, business leaders, billionaires, millionaires, people who spent their life dedicated to community. But until I met Ichiro, I had no idea what it was like to truly live in a fishbowl in a way that impacted every second of every day during the course of a life. And I only got that when I went to Japan and spent time with Ichiro in Japan. I have never been around somebody who is interested in making everyone feel as though they could be comfortable around him when in fact no one was comfortable around him. 
No one was anything but starstruck. No one could put three sentences together to make a paragraph. Everyone was They didn't know what to say. And he handled his fame with such aplomb, with such humor, with with such self-deprecation. And he never let it impact his ability to improve and be great in baseball. He never let his fame distract him from what made him famous. How many people have you come across who get famous for doing something and feel like they can then do something else and be great at it only to find out that their fame doesn't translate? It happens every day. Ichiro never forgot to he worked as hard as he did when he was a fourth outfielder, a fifth outfielder, a player who would not be able to make a team before he retired. He worked as hard those days as he did when he was the MVP, the rookie of the year. One of my great regrets in baseball is that I was never able to help Ichiro get a championship ring. He deserved that, and I wanted it for him so much when he was a member of the Marlins. But in terms of personal impact, professional impact, Ichiro and I would spend time talking about ways to make players better. We would talk about ways to make the team better. He wasn't getting involved with the marketing or the sales like other players who would come say, hey, why aren't you selling more tickets? Hey, your price of tickets should be $10, not 15. Hey, you should put more relish on the hot dogs. No, Ichiro would talk to me about baseball and about how we can make our team better by teaching base running, by teaching people to care the way he cared. Ichiro had an impact that I will never forget. And to this day when we text, and we still do, it's hard. to. It's hard. He's busy. He still works out every day. To me, he's still in game shape. He wanted to play till he was 50, and he could have. But he is still giving back to the Mariners right now by helping their minor leaguers, by teaching them discipline, by teaching them what it is to respect a game and respect people around you. It's not just Japanese culture. It is Ichiro himself who has a level of respect for him, the game and people around him that I never got a chance to see. The final quick question, was it difficult to set aside my fandom when I joined MLB? No, it happened almost simultaneously. The really difficult part, and I'll admit it now, I'm not a fan. I lost my fandom of all sports. By working in baseball for 18 years, it took away my love of the Knicks, which I love that team more than life. Seriously, when they lost a game, I was hurting. And now I have lost that, and I don't know how to get it back, but I hope one day it does. Thank you so much for that question. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Okay, a little lighter fare now, although it's not that light around the waist. Someone actually said, what was your favorite childhood snack? And then if I had to, please rank my top five snacks today. All right, you got it. It's a pretty simple one. I grew up in a household that didn't have snacks. The only snacks were raisins, literally, and prunes. That was it. It was sort of a healthy household. And I, it was not takeout. It was not delivery. It was not restaurants. It was cooked food. And it was healthy. I guess it was. When I went to school, I had the ability to get unhealthy snacks when I was old enough to get allowance. And what I did for extra money, and this is a funny little story, Go to phone booths. This is so unreal given how big a germaphobe I am. So unreal given there's no more phone booths. But back in the day, there was a change return slot where you could put your finger in and get a dime or a nickel or a quarter for people take their money or press and money would. Every phone booth I walked by for 10 years of my life, I put my finger in it and I would collect change and I would use it for one thing, to buy Hostess cupcakes. Hostess cupcakes were my favorite snack. I was not allowed to eat it. That's when I learned how to brush my teeth and use mouthwash because if I ever had a crumb of a chocolate cupcake when I got home, I would get in trouble. So I had to wash my mouth out, not with soap, but with anything, with water, with anything that would take away the remnants. And if you've had Hostess cupcakes, you know that there are remnants that could last. In a scientific study, it was shown between 20 and 25 years is how long a Hostess cupcake can exist in your teeth if you don't clean it. Hostess cupcakes, my favorite childhood snack. Dry cereal, number five. Love it. Don't put milk in cereal. When I want a snack, dry cereal. Number four. What kind, do you ask? Product 19. They're out of business. Now it's Cheerios and Special K. Number four. Nonpareils, the chocolate nonpareils, you may know them as snow caps, but the reason I don't like snow caps is that one time I was in a movie, I ordered snow caps, I was eating them. They're so small, I would pour them in my hand or out of the box because I had to eat 15 or 20 at a time. I got up at the end of the movie, someone said, Did you take a crap in your pants? And I said, What are you talking about? They said, Look at your pants. I had the biggest brown stain on my tushy ever because snow caps had missed my mouth, come out of the box, gone under my seat on the cushion, and I was squishing around in them for the entire two-hour movie. 
That was the end of the snow cap. But now the bigger non-parels are my number four. Number three, make fun of me all you want, but give me candy corn and don't you wait for Halloween because I'm eating it 365, no problem. Number two and number one are related. Keep subscribing, keep listening, keep calm. There's a reason behind Good and Plenty number two and Licorice Jelly Beans number one. And the reason is pure selfishness. I don't ever have to share The reason I don't have to share is no one else likes them. I get to get licorice, jelly beans, and good and plenty, and I don't have to have people digging their swarmy, sweat-filled, pre-coronavirus fingers into my good and plenty or licorice jelly bean bowl. Thanks for the question. All right. I'm going to keep going with something light here right now before we get a little heavier. I'm going to talk about movies. You know I carry around my top 100 movie list. You know that I update it after every movie I see and I decide whether that movie deserves to be inside my top 100 list. The last two months, I've given you 100 to 81. I've given you 80 to 61. I've given you 61 to 40. Guess what's next? I'm giving you number 40 through 21. We're getting up there, folks. Now, my nothing personal people, if you haven't listened, I already gave you my number one movie. Go back and subscribe, tell a friend. But now I'm doing 40 to 21. Let's start number 40. Cameron Crowe, one of my favorite movie makers of all time. Marooned on a desert island, give me Cameron Crowe and I'm going to be fine. Number 40 is a movie called Singles. It's a movie with Matt Dillon. It's a movie with Cameron Scott and Bridget Fonda. Bridget Fonda, who I have been in love with my entire life, ended up marrying Danny Elfman, the lead singer from Oingo Boingo, one of my old favorite bands, who's now a very famous movie composer. This is a movie about single life in Seattle. It is unbelievably interesting. This is pre-cell phone. One of the telling scenes in singles is when... Bridget Fonda wants to get tan. She takes her phone and connects it, brings the phone and the cord with an extension cord up to the roof of her building because she doesn't want to miss a phone call. Times haven't changed. You just don't need the cord. Number 39, Felman Louise. A brilliant movie with Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis about two female outlaws running from Harvey Keitel and basically running from the law. It is a movie that I will watch over and over again, and I will watch them grab each other's hand and drive their car at the end. I will think about why they did what they did, what made them feel they had to do what they do. And this was way before all of these issues of gender equality, of domestic abuse, all the things that are now so much in the forefront and so important. To me, it's not a buddy movie the way people describe it. That's just shallow. This is a movie about two people who decide to take a stand and they decide that they are going to change their lives. The ending of that movie is one of the most serious endings of any movie you'll see. Thelma and Louise. 38 is Fight Club. Fight Club. If you don't remember the first time you watched Fight Club, then you are in violation of the third rule of Fight Club. If you have not seen Fight Club with Ed Norton and Brian Bonham Carter, go watch it now. Although I want you to watch every one of these movies because you're self-quarantining. 
You're sheltering in place. I'm giving you 20 movies today. Watch them all. You'll think they're old. No, you won't. You'll realize they're some of the best movies ever made. When the reveal in Fight Club happened, I didn't see it coming. It is in the top five of all spoilers ever. Fight Club is brilliant on every level. Number 37 is Big Fish. Big Fish is a movie with Albert Finney and Ewan McGregor, Billy Crudup, Marion Cotillard, Jessica Lange. What I want to tell you about Fight Club, uh, excuse me, about Big Fish, is that it's a movie about the difference you can make in a life and whether or not the tall tales that we all tell end up being true or not true, and then whether or not that even matters. Wouldn't it be interesting to know that the skill of storytelling, the skill of being able to interest people with content, the skill of being able to make people think that they can be anything they want to be, the skill of being able to touch people throughout your life and have them remember you and care about you and think about you, that is the skill that makes people big fish. Number 36, no country for old men. That's it. Javier Bardem will go down on the Mount Rushmore, the number one for me, the greatest villain, the most disturbing, chilling villain. And I've got Hannibal Lecter up there from Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins. No Country for Old Men with James Brolin, with Tommy Lee Jones and Javier Bardem is so disturbing and so perfect that you can't stop. Number 35, another Jessica Lange movie and Dustin Hoffman. Would number 35 still be good now when it's about someone who has to cross-dress to get a job? It's about a man pretending to be a woman because in order to get a job, he needs to be a woman and he can't get a job as a man? Is it possible that Sidney Pollack directed a movie ahead of his time? Is it possible that Sidney Pollack could have directed such a perfect movie that he also appears in as the manager for Dustin Hoffman? Is it possible that Bill Murray was willing to be in this movie and not be credited? Is it possible that Terry Garr is so spot on as the love interest of Dustin Hoffman as a struggling actor? Or that Charles Durning falls in love with Dustin Hoffman as a woman? And is it even possible that someone could write a line that says, I was more of a man with you as a woman? than I've ever been with any woman as a man before. Is it possible that I butcher that line? Is it possible that I remember it perfectly? Is it possible that Tootsie has the greatest theme song at the end? You're going to have to watch. Number 34 is a movie with John Belushi and Blair Brown that not enough people saw. It's called Continental Divide. If you have any belief that I like good movies, and you have any belief that I put movies in that some people don't know about, but then you watch them, you give them a chance, and you realize that they are brilliant on several levels. Continental Divide is a movie about a city journalist in Chicago who has to go to the mountains to interview Blair Brown, who's an eagle researcher. And it is the story of two people falling in love who could not be more opposite and how you deal with long-distance love and how you deal with city people dealing with country people. The original city mouse versus the country mouse. Continental divide. 
I love it. Number 33, Goodfellas. I'm not saying a word. See, Goodfellas. Number 32, Pulp Fiction. I'm not saying a word. Pulp Fiction. Number 31, The Killing Fields. Please make sure The Killing Fields is a true story about the atrocities that took place in the Killing Fields in Cambodia. Dr. Hang S. Noor won an Academy Award. It is the true story of how a reporter tries to catalog and give information to us in real time what goes on when dictators kill. It's called The Killing Fields. You will cry. And you will never listen to the song Imagine Again. It was butchered by those actors who did Imagine And they'd be helpful and they sang Imagine on TikTok or YouTube or someplace else. This is when you hear Imagine and you will cry. Number 30 is train spotting, not blind spotting, train spotting, not train spotting two, train spotting one. You want to see a movie that you will never forget? You'll watch train spotting. 29 is Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. Jerry Maguire? It's too good. I still carry around his mission statement in my briefcase. To this day, I got it from Darren Ravel, and I carry it around in my briefcase to this day. Jerry Maguire. If you haven't seen it, get on it. I already told you what 28 was in the name of the father. We did that on Nothing Personal last week as as the best movie about a wrongly convicted group of people ever made. 27 is The Green Mile. Green Miles with Tom Hanks, Michael Clark Duncan. It's about death row. It is a movie that is fantasy. It's reality. It's sad. It's funny. It's interesting. It's scary. It's overwhelming. Not because the running time is 240 or above. It's because it's overwhelming to think of the possibility that there are people like this in the world. And I don't mean people who can cure by sucking the disease out of someone else. Number 26 is Stealing Home. I've talked about it on the show. I've reviewed it on the show. It's my top ranked baseball movie. 24, broadcast news. What's it like to know that you're always the smartest person in the room? And the answer is it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Holly Hunter, William Hurt, Albert Brooks, directed and written by James Brooks. It's about the news world. It's about the world that I'm in now, news, sports, media. It's about what people do in order to get you the information you need. Fascinating. 23 is Parenthood. Steve Martin, Keanu Reeves, Diane Weiss, Jason Robards, Tom Hulse. It's become a TV show, but watch the movie. Parenthood, it's got a Randy Newman song to start. Keanu Reeves has one of the great lines of all time in that movie. And it's about what it takes to become a father. Suffice it to say, it's easier to get a driver's license. It's harder. Can you believe? Mikey, I messed it up. It's harder to get a driver's license than it is to become. You need a license to drive and you don't need anything to become a father. Parenthood is tragic in a way Joaquin Phoenix is in that as a little boy. It is brilliant. There are so many lines. One day I'll tell you my roller coaster story, and I got that from Parenthood. 22 is The Big Chill, best soundtrack of any movie. It's a movie, little known fact about The Big Chill. Someone dies in the beginning, and they only show the sleeves of the corpse being dressed by the funeral director. That was Kevin Costner. 
little known fact. The Big Chill with Kevin Klein, Glenn Close, William Hurt, Mary Kay Place, Tom Berenger from Matter Who's In It. This is about a group of college friends who come back together for a weekend. They come back and reconnect. It would be like doing a Zoom meeting with your old college friends right now. And the importance of doing a Zoom meeting right now is that you have the opportunity to reconnect with people who you haven't been with and to have a commonality of interest and what it's like. Every single line in that movie, Jeff Goldblum, brilliant. Every single line, it's so good. Soundtrack, oh, I feel like dancing right now. And then number 21 is a movie that I have a hard time talking about. It's called Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams stars in that movie, along with Ethan Hawke. And uh, I'm not going to give one thing away about it. It's about a teacher. It's about a teacher who does things a little differently. It's about students trying to find their way. And the thing about Dead Poets Society is that when you watch it, you realize that as a parent, as a student, as a person, the responsibility that we have in everyday encounters is versus when you're nice to people. It's just as easy to be nice. When you don't care about someone's issues, it's just as easy to actually care and be helpful. When you don't understand that not everybody's going to be like you, your kid is not going to be like you just because they've got your genes. How to understand that and deal with that is all part of Dead Poets Society. That's number 21. Next month, I'm going to give you my top 20. Thanks for listening to that. Okay, next question. Have you ever lost any friendships or relationships because of things or stories that you've revealed on Nothing Personal? Where have you been? I've waited for this question since I started. I believe I've done 108 or 110. I don't know how many episodes. I'm so thankful for the opportunity. I'm so thankful that you rate and review and subscribe. Please tell a friend. I really am thankful to you. And I take it seriously. You've heard me say it. I take it seriously what I do. And what did I promise? I promised you when I introduced nothing personal that this would give you a seat at the table. I promised you that I would tell you things that are real, that are true. I would tell you stories to make you understand real life events that are happening currently. I would explain things going on off the field, on the field, by giving you examples of things I've been through, lessons I've learned, things people have told me. Because I am not trying to cure coronavirus. I don't know enough to be a scientist to come up with the vaccine. I can't cure cancer and make sick people healthier. What I can do, though, is tell you that sports is not life and death. Sports is business. You know that. Sports is entertainment. You know that. But if I have to sacrifice a friendship or relationship because I'm revealing a story to you or telling you the truth about something, I owe that to you. And I'm not going to stop under any circumstance. So the question is, have I lost any friendships? The answer is that I used to need unlimited data and voice time and minutes on my phone. And now I don't. I used to get callbacks from people no matter who I called and when I called, and now I don't. 
The answer is I used to be able to get anyone I wanted to tell me anything about any subject and have great conversations over 18 years about things on and off the field. And you quickly find out who your friends are. And I had a lot of people who I thought were my friends in baseball who don't talk to me anymore. And it made me think a lot because the first few months, six months, 12 months I was out of baseball, it wasn't happening. It's happening more now because of nothing personal. And I started realizing they're actually, they were never my friends. They were people I worked with. I thought, and I was mistaken, that I had made all these deep, lasting friendships. I thought, and I was mistaken, that I had created these bonds that would never be broken. When I left baseball because I was let go, I took my sadness and I took, it hurt. It hurt when I had built things for 18 years and I actually thought they were real. And as it turned out, the overwhelming majority were not. And there are exceptions. I still do speak to some. And I do sometimes hear from others who have heard segments on nothing personal and are upset and angry that I would reveal certain things. And I've explained that I'm not going to stop. And I've explained that I've done nothing to lower the asset value of your team or to hurt your career in any way or to stop you from hitting triples or singles or doubles or to stop you from selling your TV rights or to negotiating TV deals. Nothing to hurt your business. I would never do that. Believe me, I know that it's about business. But I also know that the things that I reveal to you are interesting because you want to hear them. And I'm not telling you things about, I don't tell personal stories. I tell you stories about business, about real things that have happened. And you don't like it? It makes me sad. Do I feel as though I've lost relationships, friendships? I do. And then I got over the sadness and I realized that the trade-off is that I have an opportunity to talk to you every single day. And I promised I wouldn't take it for granted. I promised I wouldn't stop. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm gonna keep going because you and I both know one thing. We know that it's just business. It's nothing personal. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.